Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 9. We're going to continue our verse by verse. We mentioned last week that there were various encounters that kind of framed Paul's transformation that takes place here. He was formerly Saul, then it'll be known later as Paul. But the first encounter was with Jesus himself on the Damascus Road. The second was with Ananias. And that's what we're going to read about today. And I think it's just chock full of great lessons for us. So let's all stand as we take a look. For the sake of context, I'm going to read starting with verse 1, but we'll just be covering verses 10 through 19 today. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name after the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. An amazing story. Father, there are many things about the Christian life we don't understand, things we read in the Bible we don't get, but there are some things that you seem to spend a lot of time on making clear, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and that he died, was buried, and rose again, that our hope is in him. seems to be the main story throughout the Old and New Testament. And I pray, Lord, that we as a congregation can hang our hat on those truths. 
and that we might be able to be energized to tell our own story of how we have encountered Jesus in our life as we were on our own journeys. Lord, not many of us fancy ourselves as great speakers or even feel comfortable with the notion of talking about ourselves in such a way. And yet we know it's life-giving that you have entered our lives and transformed us. So without it being forced, I pray that you might increase those opportunities for us and that we might be faithful ambassadors. And I ask that you might bear much fruit and expand your kingdom. For what is in your word today here in Acts 9, may your spirit teach us. And may it not just stop with information, but may we be obedient what you've called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Well, we talked last week about Damascus and got into a little more detail about this city. We, uh, we know it's an ancient city. We know that it's on a main trade route linking Egypt and Mesopotamia. It had a very large Jewish population, and at least one of those was a man by the name of Ananias. Now, this is not the Ananias that's named two other times throughout the book of Acts. This is the first time this particular Ananias is mentioned, and he's obviously in Damascus. And the Lord speaks to him in a vision. And in simple terms, we could say that God speaks to people when awake in a vision and when they're asleep in a dream. And when the Lord addresses Ananias, I love his response. He says, here I am, Lord. I mean, it shows he's kind of at the ready. He's, he's open. He's, he's listening. He's, he's available. And what a contrast that is with Saul. I mean, when Ananias hears the voice of God, he recognizes the voice, right? And he says, here I am, Lord. I mean, he's obviously been in communion. He recognizes the voice. And when when Saul heard the Lord speak to him, what is it that Saul said? Who is this? He recognized it probably had some divine origin. He said, Lord, but... Who is this? Now, we know in Saul's case, he was an adversary to Christ, right? So he didn't recognize that voice. He'd been contending with Christians for a long time. It's a sad thing, indeed, when Christians especially get in an adversarial position with Christ. Their hearts are not listening. Their minds are not open. They've tuned out the Lord. Kind of begs the question, I mean, how can we, how can we put ourselves in a, a listening position with God? I mean, actually, that might even be the wrong question because we can't stop with listening. Actually, what we want to ask ourselves is, how can I put myself in the best position to obey God? You know, if we say that we just want to listen 
that listening by itself could actually be a form of pride for the believer. It almost implies, you know what? I'll filter the stuff that God says to me that I'll take and the other stuff that I don't want to hear. I'm going to leave my options open, I think. That's an interesting position for the clay to take to the potter. James says we must be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. See, the deception of hearing only implies we know what's best. Listening only assumes that our wisdom and our way might be better than the Lord's. It assumes we're going to measure the Lord's words. We'll know what parts to take, what parts we feel like throwing out. And maybe you've got yourself in a position where you think that's okay, but all you got to do is put yourself maybe in a different scenario and you see how ridiculous such a position is before Almighty God. I mean, imagine a soldier saying to his commander, "Uh, I hear your orders. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell me this. Let me think about this for a day or two. I'll get back to you on whether I want to do it or not. Hmm. That will be a very short history in the armed forces for that soldier, would it not? Verse 21 of James says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And when we receive the word with meekness, it means there's little or no self-interest. There's no, there's no contending with God about his will. There's a, there's a ready acceptance. I mean, I'm going to do it, whatever he says. I like what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Pursuit of God. He said, the meek man is not a human mouse, afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion, as strong as Samson. But he stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he's as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than angels He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. The Lord tells Ananias to go to a specific street in Damascus called Straight Street. I love how the Word of God always attaches itself to real times and places and history and space. That street is still a main thoroughfare in Damascus. And he's to go to a, to a home of a man named Judas, possibly a, an acquaintance of Ananias. We don't know for sure. It seems at the same time, Saul is given a vision of Ananias laying his hands on him and praying for his healing. And then in verse 13 we read, But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, 
for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, nowhere did Ananias say that he was not going to go. Kind of like Jonah, you know, when God says, uh, I want you to go here to Nineveh, and he goes, ah, I don't think so. All right? He doesn't say that. He's just concerned. He's concerned, uh, just kind of reminding God as if God didn't know, you know. Uh, <laughs> Saul is a persecutor of Christians. And not only that, but he's been backed by the Jewish authorities to jail or to kill Christians. And the Lord answers Ananias by explaining the future that God has for Saul. And then he pointedly tells Ananias, go, go. There's no arguing from Ananias. God just gives him a simple imperative. Now he does, I think, help to kind of fill in some of the blanks for Ananias. He says, know this, first of all. Saul is now a chosen vessel of mine. Now, that's quite a statement. He's a persecutor of Christians. Now, he is a chosen vessel of mine. I'm going to use him to basically share the gospel with three different groups. Uh, government authorities, Gentiles, and Jews. I know he once hated Christ, but he is now going to be used to proclaim Christ. And then he says a third thing to Ananias, and perhaps this was the clincher. Know this, he's also going to suffer for Christ. Now, if Ananias had any doubts about the conversion of Saul, I think this would have done it. Because if there was an inauthentic conversion Nobody in their right mind is going to suffer for God when it's been an authentic conversion. You only do that if it's the real thing. The fact that, Anna, that Saul would be willing to suffer for Christ, that probably clinched it. I mean, Saul knew the cost up front. I like that God does not sugarcoat what it's going to be like to follow Christ. Unfortunately, I think what happens a lot of times is that Christians will kind of lower the expectations. We focus only on the blessings that come with following the Lord. Listen to the words of Jesus out of Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration to make the point that sometimes when people come to Christ, there's conflict. And when that conflict comes, you're to always choose me. Even if your own life is that conflict because of maybe desires or aspirations you have, you always choose my will. And in that sense, it may seem to your relatives that you hate them. But they have positioned themselves in an adversarial relationship, not you. I know uh, when I came to Christ, neither my mother or father knew the Lord. My mother was here this morning, and I was telling the story. She came to Christ shortly afterwards. 
My dad didn't come to Christ until uh, just shortly before he died. At least I didn't know about his conversion until shortly before he died. Now, my wife's situation was different. There, there was not any opposition, by the way, with my parents. They were, I remember my dad even saying, because uh, once I came to Christ, I was at church all the time and going on mission trips, doing all I could for the kingdom. And I remember my dad saying, my dad was not a believer, and he just said, well, I guess I'd rather have you out in the, at the church than in the streets. <laughs> it made sense to him. There was not opposition. Now, with Janet, it was different. Uh, she came from a home that was not Protestant. And I remember when she came to Christ, there was, there was opposition. And, uh, there was uh, her mother particularly. Her father had already died, but her mother, I remember, coming to the church. Where, by the way, I was a youth pastor. I met my wife the night she came to Christ. Uh, when Janet got baptized, her mother was like, wait a minute. She, she was baptized as a baby. Why is she getting baptized again? It was, it was offensive to her. I mean, I understand that. But there was, there was conflict. There was not understanding. And, but guess what? Years later, her mother came to Christ. And I had the, the wonderful privilege of baptizing her and keeping her under the water for several minutes. And <laughs> stop talking about this. Teasing. Jazz teasing. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, when Jesus was talking about shoddy construction, not finishing, not making plans, listen, people knew probably what he was referring to because in 27 AD in Rome, there was an amphitheater that was built, and apparently they did not do a very good job because one day when it was filled, it collapsed and tens of thousands of people lost their life. So when Jesus says one has to build with the knowledge of all the materials and, and the manpower that will be needed to complete the job, to do a good job, they knew what he was talking about. So in, in the same kind of way, you need to set the expectations for when, when you're presenting the gospel, when you're talking to people about following Christ, Make good plans. Tell them what's ahead. They need to be properly prepared to commit to the lordship of Christ. We don't sell Christianity, first of all, right? But if you want to use that kind of term, you certainly don't do it by just saying it's all blessing. You get whatever money or healing you want. We have to be honest with people that what's up ahead isn't always in our favor in terms of, you know, what's easy. Now, obviously, there are tremendous benefits to following Christ, yes? But there's also a price to pay. Might be a cost to a reputation. And there's, there's a commitment to obedience to Christ and, and stewardship and responsibilities, and we don't like to talk about that when it comes to following Christ because that doesn't sell. 
But Saul knew from the beginning that he was going to suffer, and he enters that. He wants to be a faithful disciple. So we can't soft-sell Christianity, lofty promises and expectations, and, and leave out the call for faithful service and suffering. Listen, if people decide to flake out on Christ and the numbers are far too high, let it not be because we soft-selled the gospel. The fact is, we can't reduce Christianity to some formula, you know? You do this, you're going to get all this stuff. The fact is, things don't always work out for you because you had your devotions. Because you read your Bible and you pray. You're still going to have opposition. There will still be suffering. Relationships aren't always smooth because you mean well and you're sincere and you do the right things. People may still hate you. But Paul wrote, when at all possible, be at peace with others. But sometimes it's not always possible. You don't always get positive feelings when you do the right thing or when you're serving God. Sometimes you have to battle your own flesh. I mean, the fact is, is that to work out the, the things that are essential to the Christian life, I mean, values like you know, humility and love and you know, justice, these things are best produced with pressure, conflict. That's when the, the gold kind of rises to the top. One other observation before we leave this, verses 15 and 16 here. We, we only hear of Ananias one other time in, in, in the book of Acts, this particular Ananias, and he's found faithful and ministering. He's really a rather obscure character, except for the fact that he plays a part here in Saul's conversion. No small part. And it reminds us that there are many lesser-known servants of Christ that maybe support well-known servants of Christ or well-known ministries or maybe ministries that aren't well-known, but the ministry and the person are not known. And that's okay because here's the thing. God does not reward fame. God rewards faithfulness. You make fame your goal. Trust me. It's going to be much disappointment. I mean, when, when I think of this church and I think of the people who labor and work and the children's ministry or, or VBS in the summer, volunteer for all sorts of things, or maybe they, they make coffee on Sunday morning or they are you know, vacuuming the floor or they're shoveling the walk or the, the thousands of details that, that go into doing what we do on a Sunday morning. I mean, I, I think it, it takes a company of, of faithful volunteers. Now, we try to show our thanks, but we can't get around to every single person. And Here's the bottom line. God does. God sees it all, will reward every faithful deed, every word spoken in a life group, every prayer of encouragement that will lift up the heart of the downtrodden, God rewards that as well. God rewards every act of love. 
You probably haven't heard of Edward Kimball, but I bet you've heard of D.L. Moody. And it was Kimball who led D.L. Moody to Christ. You probably don't know who Mordecai Ham is, but you know of one man that he led to Christ, Billy Graham. God rewards faithfulness, not fame. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of how the obedience of of Ananias has been played out now, is that he goes to the house and he lays his hands on Saul. Now, let's not just gloss over that as if that's some small thing. Imagine his trepidation beforehand of getting up close and personal with this former persecutor of Christians, and now he's going inside the house face-to-face with that chief persecutor of Christians. And he lays his hands on him as a, as a demonstration of, of, of support and intimate fellowship and approval because he believes God's words that he's been changed and he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ananias acts on what God has told him about Saul. He, he obeys God because Saul's been transformed. And what a conversion it was, right? There's an old story told of a little boy who, in Sunday school, the teacher asked what part we play in salvation. Of course, we don't play any part, but the boy says, well, me and God kind of split, you know, what part we played. He did his part, I did mine, and the, the nervous teacher inquired about that strange answer until the boy replied, here's the part I played. I opposed God all I could, and he did the rest. I think Saul could say amen to that. That's a narrative that all of us could relate to in terms of when we found freedom from our sin. We fought it. We fought it with our intellectual arguments. We fought it with the stuff that we thought we'd have to give up. We fought it because we didn't want to break ranks with maybe a family member, somebody else. We wanted, didn't want to Let some people down. There's a million reasons we throw in our heads for why we're going to oppose God. Saul didn't have any reasons left, did he? He was a murderer. He was a torturer of Christians. His reputation could easily have caused panic and fear in in Ananias. Saul was the called himself the chief, the worst of sinners. And yet Ananias, in what I think is one of the most gracious statements in the New Testament, he greets Saul and he says, Brother Saul. Now, how much time did Ananias have to evaluate whether Saul had been changed or not? None. All he had was what God had told him about Saul. Now, if that were me, or many of us, we'd have probably said, you know what? First of all, I'm going to stay about 10 feet away, and I'd like to give myself a few weeks to see if this guy's the real deal. 
But no. God told Ananias, he's changed. He's mine. He's on, my, he's on a mission. And Ananias believed what God said about Saul. And he calls him a fellow believer. And he lays his hands on him. Oh, we could go to town on this. Of how we define ourselves or define others. Is it what God says about them? Or is it about what the culture says? What defines us is not the culture. What defines us is not even what we say about ourselves or our gender or our choice of sexual partners or who our mate is. What defines us is not our vocation. What defines us is not our bank account. It is not our wardrobe. What defines us is not our marriage partner. What defines us is not our marital status or how many children we have. What defines us is not what school we graduated from. What defines us is not what denomination or church we find ourselves in. What defines us is what our maker has said about us. He's the one that defines reality for us. Who are we as the clay to say to the potter, I'll tell you what I am? The audacity, the arrogance of such a thing. Our creator defines the parameters of what makes a person, what makes us valuable. And God said to Ananias, Saul is mine. Saul now has a purpose. And my friends, there may have been other people in your life. It could have been a parent. It could have been somebody that when you were a kid who told you you wouldn't amount to much and now you're spending all of your life trying to prove that person wrong. Maybe you're in a marriage situation or another relationship where you feel really low. You feel like a failure. There's only one voice that has the right to define for us who we are, and that is our maker, our designer. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We need to operate with one another on the basis of what God has said about one another. We need to even operate with those outside the church and according to what God has said about them because even people who don't know Christ are still made in the image of God and are deserving of respect as a human being regardless of how they live their life or the decisions that they've made. We're to approach others as believers in Christ based upon their identity that God has given to them. See, your formal li former life and what you've done does not identify you now. But many think in those terms. Your sin does not exempt the grace of God. 
God calls us brothers and sisters. We're, we're in the family of God. We're saints. We, we have an inheritance sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are forgiven. We are hidden in Christ. We need to be gone with all the self-talk that maybe calls yourself an idiot because of the education you think is subpar or whatever reason or because of your income or whatever. Be done with seeing yourself through the words of others. Be done with trying to prove yourself to others. Who you are, God defines. Your importance and purpose are granted to you by Him. Your purpose and your value is not told to you by the scale that you stand on. God told Ananias who Saul was. Ananias believed God and he acted on that. That's a good place for all of us to start in our relationships. It says here that Saul would be empowered for service because he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're not told of any extracurricular manifestations other than what the passage provides for us. And what the passage provides for us is that Saul walked in obedience. He was baptized, he went, and then he started preaching, it says in verse 20. And so... The filling of the Holy Spirit is one of the ways that we are empowered for service. We are energized by the power of God. There's no formula I'm going to give you. There's no one sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit that the Bible gives. There's a numerous instances of being filled with the Holy Spirit. One thing is not in all of those instances. What we can say is that it empowers us for obedience, for service to God. Verse 18 and 19, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. I can't explain what those scales were, but it seems obvious that he was healed by God. And it says that he was immediately baptized. He walked in obedience. He had this new found relationship with Christ. He made this public proclamation of water baptism. Man, that is one baptism I wish I could have seen. Can you imagine? I mean, the other believers standing around whispering to one another, get a load of this. Saul being baptized. Now that's amazing. That would have been cool to see. And then it says, after three days of not eating or drinking, he took some food. He took some food. It may not seem spiritual to some, but taking care of the physical body has a purpose. It prepares us for service. You know, when, when I think of trying to eat right, when I do, or trying to get in shape of some kind, the purpose is not so that I can preen before others, okay? But the purpose for the Christian is that we can utilize our bodies for his service. In other words, it's going to be a vessel for endurance, a vessel to 
hopefully gain energy that, you know, I can serve my wife, my children, my grandchildren, and the church that I'm in, and the community that I find myself in. And so I want to be here as long as possible. So I want to be a good steward of what God has given me for that purpose. So there is a place for stewardship of the body when we put it in terms of the context of service for Christ. Notice Saul's now enjoying the sweet fellowship with other believers. It says then that he was with the disciples at Damascus. I mean, from, from torturing Christians to now enjoying the fellowship with Christians, taking communion together, eating with them, laughing together, sharing Scripture, talking about the transformation that's takes, that has taken place in their lives. I mean, Christians ran from this man, now they are congregating with him. They feared him, now they love him. It strikes me that we probably have people in our own life right now that we fear. People in our own life right now that we are very angry at. People in our own life right now that we have frozen out, that we have created distance We don't draw near because we remember the past. Maybe how that person has hurt us or what kind of person we think that that person is. Let me just throw this out for you to to think about. One mark of spiritual transformation is reconciliation. That's our ability to engage in a healthy relationship where prior there was an unhealthy one. Because now the Bible says we're in a new family. We have new relationships. So our obedience is going to be demonstrated by our treatment of other believers as family members, as fellow saints, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, what started as a trip to Damascus to torture Christians ended with the transformation of Saul. All people who've been place into the family of God and forgiven of their sins are recipients of the same spirit who transformed Saul. He's transformed us. And now we walk in obedience as we seek to submit to Christ. But that transformation, that change is not because of our own doing. I think a lot of Christians will see themselves as basically the, the ones that are responsible for the change that comes to their heart. You know, I'm going to be at church as any time that the door is open or I need to do this or that because I have it within my own strength to make the change. Well, that's religion. That's not the power of Christ. The fact is, all that we can really affect is the outward shell. But we don't change our hearts. That's a fact. We can't. I mean, what does the world have? When you talk about all the the, the problems of, of racism in our culture. What we need is, is education. Well, that has a place. But you're not going to change somebody's heart. That's something the gospel does. People can't change their spirits, their hearts. 
Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Well, the leopard can't change his spots. So the evil man cannot turn himself into a good person. Jeremiah 2.22 says, though you wash yourself with a lie and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Or Proverbs 27.22, crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle. That's a, that's a large wooden tool that's used to crush things or to grind things. Along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. You cannot change your heart or your spirit. Transformation only occurs by the hand of God. He does that through the gospel. Listen, I look at a period in my own life, and maybe you look at others, and you think, how can we be so destructive and hurtful? How is it that that you can sabotage your families, sabotage other relationships by your behavior and your words and, 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 and the attitudes? It seems that we exhaust every human proclivity for evil until we get to the end of ourselves and realize, all right, I give up, I can't do it. I'm here to tell you that there's great freedom in coming to the end of yourself. There's great freedom that comes with the humility of realizing you cannot fix yourself. And by the way, you're not going to fix your partner either. can't fix others. Ask the spouse who gives up berating or freezing out their partner if that works. Ask the person who quits trying to manage their addiction with just behavior modification. Ask the person who finally surrenders to the truth that God makes their identity. And they do not need the approval of others. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, Christ is the one doing the work. Christ is the one on the inside. Then he is a what? He's a new creation. I'm not going to sit here and give you five steps. Because there aren't any. I'm not going to give you a formula. Because there isn't one but I will tell you of the person and his name is Jesus Christ. He changes the heart via the gospel. And for those who have believed the gospel, he continues to change us through humble submission before him.